Welcome to Fearonomics, the podcast which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. We'll be looking at the latest economic data, debunking myths and defining the risks we need to watch out for. And of course, those that we don't. As Europe scrambles to find alternatives to Russian gas, some countries face the prospect of rationing and even fuel poverty. Energy security, which has slipped down the priority list of Western policymakers, has made a big comeback. Meanwhile, there's a new UN report warning of unprecedented heat waves, terrifying storms and widespread water shortages if we continue down the same route, the fossil fuel route, that we've been on. So, how do we combine reliable supplies with green ones? Are we at risk of being derailed from the green transition? How do we avoid catastrophe? We'll be trying to find out some answers. My name is Jonathan Charles, and here with me, I've got Sergei Guria, Professor of Economics at Sciences Po in Paris, and Beata Yavorchik, Professor of Economics at Oxford University, and more importantly, of course, the EBRD's Chief Economist, who will assess the uh, potential, the fears, the risks, the solutions to this global energy crisis. So let's look at the context. With Russia now demanding payment in rubles for energy supplies, European capitals are activating emergency legislation to deal with potential acute energy shortages and are even considering turning back to coal. Even before the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, the hike in energy prices had brought coal use globally to record levels over last winter, whilst clean energy use decreased, a very worrying tendency. The new UN International Panel for Climate Change report warns us that even if all the policies to cut carbon that governments have put in place by the end of 2020 were fully implemented, the world would still warm by 3.2 degrees centigrade this century. The next few years are critical, say the researchers, because if emissions aren't curbed by 2030, it'll make it impossible to limit warming up the climate. So we're talking climate, people, the planet. Are these the three key fears we're facing? What is more scary, inflation or 3.2 temperature rise? Is this the end of a shift to green energy? Will coal make a comeback? All very, very big questions. Now, Sergey, Beata, what do you think? What are the three key fears that keep you awake at night? Beata, maybe you want to go first. Sure, Jonathan. Um, climate change is definitely very scary, but inflation is also a menace. I still vividly remember the early years of transition in Poland with its hyperinflation. I remember the new Polish Zloty replacing the old Zloty with four zeros being knocked off. And people were struggling to divide all the prices by 10,000. You know, it's not as straightforward as you may think. So again. Well, I, I am scared more about uh, about three uh, degrees temperature rise. Uh, if you ask me about uh, main three fears, I think the first fear is actually the impact of higher energy prices on uh, developing countries. I think this is what we don't really talk much about. We talk about the impact of sanctions on uh, Russian economy. We talk about the impact of higher energy prices and oil and gas embargo on European economy, including the richest European economy, uh, Germany. But we don't talk enough about how poorer countries around the world will actually suffer from, from, from that. Regarding other fears, I, I'm not worried about the end of shift to green energy. I think it will continue. It may slow down for a year or two in the sense that German strategy of the green energy transition that uh, relied on Russian gas as a transition fuel 
may have to choose alternative routes, and we may actually see a temporary comeback of coal, coal in case uh, gas importeri for full gas embargo comes in. It may be uh, one or two years of uh, uh, more coal consumption than we thought. Uh, it will be more nuclear for sure than foreseen, but overall the war will accelerate the, uh, the switching of Russian fossil fuel in Europe, which probably is on balance good for, uh, for uh, green energy transition. All right, let's try and unpick a few of these things. I mean, energy, in a way, has become a very important foreign policy tool, hasn't it, for Russia, Sergei? That's absolutely true. Um, in uh, Soviet times, uh, people would talk about colonialism, uh, imperialism, where developing countries would serve as energy appendage to developed countries, to metropolis of colonies. Uh, and then uh, Russia, which became an energy appendage to developed countries, especially to Europe, suddenly said, we are going to be energy superpower. And that was the uh, center, the central theme of Russia's 2006 G8 summit. Uh, and then uh, Russia tried to use uh, gas and energy more generally as a policy tool, as geopolitical tool. And that was uh, pointing in the direction that Europe needs to wake up and think about the ways to deal with that. And now um, American, French, German economists talk about how German energy policy was as disastrous as uh, Greek uh, fiscal policy. And it's time to recognize the mistakes and think about this. If, if uh, your uh, main gas supplier is using the gas against you in geopolitical matters, maybe as uh, Prime Minister Draghi said, you need to make your choices, peace or air conditioning, uh, so I think, I think uh, these are the challenges and trade-offs that need to be used. But yes, Russia doesn't have many tools. Uh, one of them would be nuclear weapons. The other one would be experts of gas. Unfortunately, Russia doesn't have much of soft power or technological prowess. So the question is, uh, the question is what else? And so the use of gas has been very central to Russian uh, geopolitical adventures and uh, threats and, and sources of power. So we shouldn't be surprised, but it's time to wake up to this reality and think about the strategy where Russia is deprived of this tool. And Beata, uh, this is a big problem, isn't it? For Western Europe in particular, for some Western European economies, but, but globally, because uh, even if people are not taking Russian gas, you know, it does affect the global price uh, if Russia uh, does something to supplies. But on the other hand, it is a direct threat to, to some Western European economies. You know, we've talked, to, I think, in the past, you know, about uh, countries being hooked on Russian gas as though it's some sort of drug addiction. Absolutely. So what would it mean if Russia cut off gas supplies to Europe or if Europe decided no longer to buy gas from Russia? Well, first, there is the impact on the real economy. Uh, replacing imports of gas from Russia is really not possible in the short run. You know, in oil markets, there's always some spare capacity. Um, this is not true of markets for natural gas. The US promised to supply 15 billion cubic meters of gas to Europe this year and some more next year, but that's just 10% of what Europe buys from Russia every year. So we are probably looking at rationing of gas. We are looking at 
at non-critical industrial users of gas being cut off. And actually, Germany has already started making contingency plans. Of course, this will mean lower production, lower employment, lower taxes, lower growth. And we haven't even started talking about uh, higher gas prices translating into inflation and their impact on low-income households. Finally, I worry that high gas prices may undermine the green agenda because populists can use high gas prices and, as an excuse to campaign against green transition. And as we have learned during the Brexit referendum, claims don't have to be true um, in order to work. Is there a danger, do you think, Beata, that countries will face a choice between turning off some sectors of industry uh, or heating homes this, this coming winter, for example, uh, next winter? Because when gas demand is high, if you've only got limited supply, which we might, there might be that possibility, you have to make a choice, don't you, between domestic consumers and industrial consumers sometimes? Absolutely. But I think countries would prioritise heating homes even if it comes at a very high cost in terms of output. Now, remember that this would mean lower production and we would need temporary measures to keep people employed, uh, something akin to Kurzarbeit measures we saw um, during previous crises and during the pandemic, because industrial users would really have no need for workers if they are not operating but we still would want to keep these people employed with their incomes coming to them. Hmm. Sergey, I mean, it's one thing that has surprised me. You know, if you look at Western sanctions on Russia at the moment, they're really aimed at trying to bring large parts of the Russian economy to a halt uh, to make it very difficult for, for Russia. Why isn't Russia reciprocating? I mean, Russia could bring large parts of some European economies to a halt by just stopping gas exports. I think we have an answer to this question. Uh, Mr. Putin, as you mentioned, uh, suddenly suggested that uh, European customers have to pay for Russian gas in rubles. That is a strange statement and nobody understood why this statement was made. Uh, but uh, G7 immediately said, sorry, contracts are in dollars and euros and will uh, pay in dollars and euros. And some people got scared, exactly as, as you said, that Putin will say, sorry, we will not supply gas to you. Uh, that is not what happened. Mr. Putin said, okay, if you want to pay in dollars and euros, we accept your dollars and euros. And then within our own bank, Gazprom Bank, we will con convert to rubles at the official rate. So uh, Russian government immediately climbed down, immediately walked back on its threats. Why? Because for Russia, dollars and euros are really, really important to uh, support ruble, to balance the budget. And uh, the gas experts from Russia to Europe are more important for Russia than for Europe, as was demonstrated in this particular episode. So whatever Russians say, whatever Europeans say, uh, we should judge by deeds. And deeds tell us that uh, Mr. Putin cares about gas exports to Europe much more than Europe cares about gas imports from Russia. So in that sense, I think uh, the, uh, the, uh, the proof is right, right there. So Russia can't afford to stop the flows. That's absolutely true. Uh, actually, oil is even more important than gas, but gas is also important. And you, you should remember that 
oil in in principle as beata has said in principle it's a fungible commodity and in principle if russia has enough tankers and if these tankers are not blocked and that is also an if because uh, uh for example uh, right now it looks like that russian seas become a uh, war zone or announced by as a war zone by international insurance insurers which means uh, transportation to and from russia by sea may become very expensive but uh in principle, physically, Russia can export oil by sea anywhere, everywhere. But gas, most of gas in Russia, much more than LNG, it's a pipeline gas. There, there is an order of magnitude difference. And so if Russia doesn't export to Europe by pipeline, doesn't, doesn't know what to do with this gas. And so in that sense, uh, this gas is really, really important for uh, Russia to export to Europe. No, it's very important to bear in mind. Beata, I, I'm just wondering, you know, when we assess the shock, and it is a shock, an energy shock right now, isn't it? We've seen both in terms of pricing of gas and oil. How does this compare, do you think, to the energy shocks which rocked uh, economies in the, say, 1973, mid-70s period, or, or indeed sort of late 1979, 1980, after the Iranian revolution, we saw the energy shock running through economies? So Jonathan, this is not the first shock that is shaking energy markets. Um, we went through something similar in the 70s, um, then in the 80s during the Iraq-Iran war, in 1990s during the Gulf war. Um, all of these shocks were associated in a drop in global production of oil between four and 7% and increase in prices. Um, in the 70s, the price went up by about 50%. Um, during the Gulf War, about 90%. All of these um, shocks caused recessions in the US and in some other countries. Um, so certainly uh, a shock of even greater magnitude is not going to be pretty. Now, oil prices are not yet at historical highs. It's the gas prices that are beating records in Europe, um, but it is not inconceivable that if there is an embargo on Russia, um, prices of oil will skyrocket. Now, remember what embargo would mean is that major oil companies would be released from their obligations, their contractual obligations to buy Russian gas. And then they would all scramble to purchase oil and gas from other producers. And that certainly would have an impact on global prices. Now, obviously Russia could redirect its oil sales to China, uh, but as Sergei was saying, um, redirecting gas sales is very difficult because the pipelines going west and the pipelines going east are not connected. So though I understand that some construction uh, is starting to mitigate that, but obviously building thousand kilometers of a pipeline is a huge undertaking that takes years. And Sergei, uh, lots of European governments have talked about looking for alternatives to Russian gas, uh, perhaps American LNG supplies, uh, looking at Qatar and, and other supplies. Is this all feasible? Well, as Beata said, uh, all these all this, uh, things are impossible in the short run and uh, possible in the long run. 
And uh, there is a paper, and I, I, applaud, I applaud my German colleagues, a number of uh, uh, distinguished German economists, as the war started, began to crunch numbers on a um, sophisticated model, trying to figure out what that means in the short run and longer run for German economy if there is no Russian gas and, uh, and Russian oil. And their results are actually showing that the costs for German economy will be substantial, but not catastrophic. Recently, the German Council of Economic Experts summarized all the studies like this, which came up uh, uh, in recent weeks uh, from private sector, from government, from academia. And again, the result is, on average, we are going to see a 1-2% uh, GDP decline in Germany because of full embargo. Uh, there is also a French uh, government think tank, which put together a team of French and German economists, again, very distinguished academics who um, did it country by country in European Union, and their proposal is actually full oil embargo and a tax on uh, import of gas. Now, the tax uh, of 40% will de decrease the imports of gas from Russia by 80%. So the remaining 20% will be consumed by um, players, by industries, by households, which value the uh, gas more than others. So there is, uh, instead of rationing, there is a market mechanism that will take care of that. And again, there'll be no catastrophic implications for European economies. Actually, the economies which will suffer most are economies closer to Russia. And of course, these are the countries that advocate for embargo more than others, uh, because they have thought about alternatives, because they um, uh, don't like being attacked and being neighbors, uh, being neighbors to a huge humanitarian tragedy, tragedy which is uh, Russian war in Ukraine now. So uh, all these all these things are painful, but they are not catastrophic and they are not even comparable to COVID epidemic in terms of economic cost. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, uh, everybody will look for alternatives. Everybody understands these alternatives are imperfect, and uh, in that sense, uh, this is a difficult situation. But uh, it's not it's not even the uh, disaster at the level of COVID. And it still means potentially putting yourself in the hands of some regimes which are uh, not necessarily terribly nice. So there's a lot of discussions about Iran, about Venezuela. That's correct. And this is uh, bringing us back to American neocons uh, 20 years ago, saying that uh, our Lord uh, uh, placed the oil in, in hands of people who don't necessarily share our values, right? And indeed, uh, America will now uh, choose its uh, lesser evils and talk to Iran, Venezuela, and will talk to its allies, which seem to be very adamant and stubborn, such as Saudi Arabia, and uh, Emirates, as Beada said, there is a lot of spare capacity, but uh, uh, Saudis and, and Emiratis for now don't want to use this capacity. Now, I would remind you 1939, 1941, um, when since you are based in London, you would remember how Winston Churchill said that if uh, Hitler invades uh, the hell, Churchill is happy to ally himself with uh, Satan, with the devil. And uh, in 1940s, UK and US did uh, create an alliance with Stalin, who by all means was not a nice person and actually initiated the war in 1939, being a ally of Hitler. Yet he was an important ally in, uh, in the World War II to finish this war and defeat uh, Hitler's Germany. So I think, uh, unfortunately, sometimes you make very unpleasant choices.
<laughs> okay, let me remind you, you're listening to Fearonomics, which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. You can review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and share your ideas with us on Twitter at EBRD, hashtag Fearonomics. Our subject today is the Fearonomics of a Global Energy Crisis. And with me are uh, Sergei Guriev and Beata Yevorchik. Beata, some countries across the EBRD regions are amongst the most affected by potential price hikes uh, on energy and uh, possibly even shortages such as, you know, the Baltic states and countries like that. What, what are the mechanisms to mitigate the risks? Is, is it building uh, new terminals? Is it looking for other supplies? How do, you, how do you mitigate this issue? Well, let me put the scale of the challenge into perspective. Gazprom is the largest gas producer in the world producing more than BP, Shell, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Saudi Aramco combined. So I think we need to try all possible avenues at the same time, right? We've already talked about the diplomatic front. Um, you know, if we revive a nuclear deal with Iran, that would unlock access to Iranian gas, though I think in the short run, uh, this wouldn't have a huge effect. Um, we should think about helping Algeria resolve its diplomatic spat with Morocco so that export routes from Algeria to Spain could be reopened. Um, there is certainly need for lots of investment in infrastructure, both in exporting as well as importing countries. LNG terminals in Europe are mostly in the very West, in, in around Spain. So that's not helping Baltic countries very much. Um, I wonder if there is scope for not shutting down nuclear power plants that were scheduled to be closed down. And of course, scaling up renewables is another possibility that should be used. But let's not kid ourselves. All of these measures will take time and they are not going to alleviate shortages this or next year. And the other thing is, you know, I, I thought I would never hear it said, but uh, coal, you know, being potentially back in fashion for a short period of time, you know, I thought those days were behind us. Yes, even though, you know, we are now hearing discussions about Europe trying to kick the coal addiction by introducing embargo on imports of Russian coal. But you know, what, what worries me is that if Europe does this and it kicks the coal addiction, um, would some other countries become more addicted to coal? If there is a finite supply of LNG uh, in the short run and Europe buys more uh, from other countries, um, then there will be less left for countries who are currently making these purchases. So, you know, you don't want countries like Pakistan to lock themselves into reliance on coal for a decade or two. Mm. Uh, Sergey, what, what does this mean then for, do you think, uh, our green ambitions? Uh, because, you know, we, I, I guess it's a bit, I always think of it a bit like scales. You know, we, uh, you've got scales on one side, you've got energy security, and the other side, you've got green ambitions. Uh, and, you know, up until now, green ambitions, the scale had been, you know, more favorable towards that. Uh, now we seem to be at least temporarily tipping back to energy security having the upper hand in this discussion. 
I think um, I think uh, you correctly characterize the situation, and indeed, energy security is not just energy security in terms of diversifying your uh, energy portfolio so you're less vulnerable to oil price shocks. But energy security is now linked to security, meaning people are being killed. And uh, in that sense, I think um, uh, there could be a different priority, even if it's a temporary priority. And I think 2022 is the year when we see a war in Europe. And in that sense, uh, indeed, everything else is being postponed until there is peace. And so in that sense, I don't think energy security will be sidelined or uh, buried. I am pretty sure that uh, uh, European ambition uh, for greening its economy will not disappear. Just it's going to be delayed by a year. And in that sense, I think I think we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, really jump to conclusions that coal is here to stay, and so on. Moreover, as I said, uh, Europe and Germany in particular thought about gas as a transition fuel, but transition is always temporary, as we know in the BRD, right? So uh, in that sense, uh, we know that Europe would eventually plan to get rid of gas. And in that sense, this uh, elimination of Russian gas is part of the longer term, not a multi-year, but multi-decade plan to become fully green, uh, getting rid of all fossil fuel, uh, including gas. So I think, I think in that sense, we shouldn't think about uh, this as a reversal of policies, but in some dimensions, it's actual acceleration of greening the economy. What do you think, Beata, about this? A year seems not very long in terms of a delay. I'm surprised. That's, that's very optimistic of Sergei. Maybe he's right. But uh, what do you think, Beata? Well, I don't see a tension between energy security and green transition, simply because energy security means not only geographic diversification of energy sources, it means diversification of, of sources or the type of sources that, that we use. Um, so I am hoping that we will scale up investment in renewables, um, that you know, our dream to import electricity from Africa will come true and that we will invest in, in R&D, in innovation that will make it possible sooner rather than later. Where does technology come into this? You know, we often talk, you know, market forces in the end are very powerful things. Market forces also spur on technology to try to plug the gap in these situations. Do you think that there's hope there, Sergey? and first of all, then Beata? Absolutely. I think uh, prices really uh, make uh, minds focus. And uh, one example I would give, it's not necessarily an example of green energy technological investment, but uh, uh, you remember in 2000s when oil prices went up, shale gas and then shale oil revolution took place and America became oil independent, energy independent. So right now, America is a net oil exporter or, or zero net oil exporter or net, net uh, oil importer. And so when we talk about, about LNG, we already talk about American gas coming to Europe. And when we talk about uh, oil market, we talk about America being able to impose oil embargo on Russian oil without any problem. That was completely different in mid-2000s. And in that sense, we can see how private sector can actually respond very quickly and uh, pretty much double American oil production within just several, several years. It's not necessarily good for climate, but it kind of gives you an idea how high prices may actually 
uh, bring investment on board in energy sector. And I'm pretty sure the same will happen in uh, green uh, technology uh, today because of high oil prices, high gas prices, there'll be a lot of incentive to invest more in various uh, uh, environmentally sustainable energy technologies. They also Clear signals matter. So if the EU continues sending very clear signals about its strong commitment to decarbonization, this is going to focus investors' minds. Um, this is not about the short run. This is about the long term. If the direction of the policy is clear, investors will very quickly realize in these very uncertain times, investment in innovation related to energy transition is a growth area and money will pour in. In the short term, we see governments doing various things. There's been a one-off tax cut in, in Germany, for example, to try to help people over energy costs. Uh, there's a, something similar in the United Kingdom. I'm speaking to you from Spain today, where the government uh, has cut uh, 20 cents off a, a litre of fuel by subsidising it uh, a petrol. You know, I, I, I paid 1.49 one day a litre. I'm now paying 1.29 euro today. Uh, so are these solutions that can endure, or are they really sticking plasters on a very big problem? These are sticking plasters. Moreover, these are the, long, the wrong plasters. Uh, with all due respect, Jonathan, I don't think you need subsidized gasoline. Your EBRD salary should allow you to afford higher prices, and perhaps you would walk on food more frequently or take public transport. So, what really should be happening is means-tested, targeted um, transfers to households that are energy insecure, to households that need such transfers the most, rather than across the board cuts. We don't want um, people to miss the price signals. Energy transition is about changing relative prices, is about discouraging usage of fossil fuels through higher prices. And this would be happening naturally. And these subsidies, these transfers are um, blurring the signal. Yes, and giving a big role to the state as well. I guess that's what happens when wars happen. Absolutely. And, you know, the state is coming back with a vengeance. Uh, you know, most commentary about the role of the state focuses on China, but we are forgetting that in other post-communist countries, um, the share of public employment is still much higher than in other economies with similar incomes per capita. The difference is about 7% percentage point. Um, in Belarus, three quarters of all employment are state employment. 50% of total employment is in, in state-owned enterprises. And what's quite striking is that even though the share of the state in total employment has been decreasing over the last three decades, public support for the state playing a greater role in the economy has been increasing. And that is true in advanced economies, this is true in post-communist countries and in emerging markets. And if history is any guide, um, we know that people who experienced a recession during their formative years, people who lived through an epidemic in their youth, 
they are more suspect of free markets, more positively predisposed to redistribution and greater role of the state in the economy. So I would imagine the state coming back even more in the years to come. What do you think, Sergey? I mean, energy crises always give a big role to states. I remember it well in the, I'm old enough to remember the 1970s energy shocks. Yes, uh, I agree. And I would like to support Beata here that uh, we should use uh, uh, incentives rather than rationing. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, economists around Europe uh, have, are signing this petition, which is uh, on stopfinancingwar.com. Uh, and this petition includes three elements, full embargo on Russian oil, the tax on Russian gas, which would actually allow people uh, who can pay and need to pay for Russian gas to keep consuming Russian gas. It's just that Putin's uh, export to Europe will go down by 80%. And then the third element of this petition, of this policy proposal, is... Uh, support for low-income households, uh, which I hope, Jonathan, you are not, and so you can still pay higher, uh, higher price for gasoline. So, um, in that sense, in that sense, I think uh, Europe has shown that market economy does better than command economy of Soviet Union, and in that sense, I think uh, we should stick to our strengths and uh, we should support the low-income households. We should uh, make sure that um, the shock is not. Uh, concentrated on those who cannot bear it. But uh, uh, I think uh, walking away to a work econ war economy, sorry, to rationing, to the state telling people what to produce and by uh, which tools, I think that would be a mistake. Uh, the uh, market economy is resilient. Uh, we, even during COVID, didn't move to war economy, even though we saw a great increase in government spending. But still, I think uh, we shouldn't think about public sector as a panacea. I think uh, we, and uh, I, I would say we uh, at the BRD, even though I don't work at the BRD anymore, uh, we at the BRD uh, are strong believers in sustainable market economy, in private entrepreneurship. And this is what is needed for green energy transition. And this is what, what is needed for uh, standing up to non-democratic regimes which are always trying to concentrate power. It's not a coincidence, whether it's a capitalist dictatorship or a communist dictatorship, dictators always want to concentrate power. And that also means concentrated economic power, uh, eliminate competition because economic competition also creates political competitions, competition which they don't like. And so if history is any guide, democracies and market economies have done so far better. And I think we should not we should not forget that. That's very good to hear. Uh, okay, listen, let's let's uh, sum up here. Uh, maybe you know we should end by me asking you, both of you, which is the real fear that we should have in mind then? What is the one fear we should definitely have in mind over energy uh, after having discussed all these potential fears? Uh, Sergey, you go first. Well, like in the beginning, I would say my real, real fear is uh, uh, the global warming which uh, we may or may not be able to contain within two degrees scenario and three degrees scenario is looming large. Four degrees scenario is also impos not impossible. So I'm worried about this and this remains an existential threat. I don't think that delaying green energy transition by a year uh, will make a huge difference. But forgetting about the, the climate change 
would be a mistake and potentially disastrous mistake for us and for our children. The other fear that I have is that the current crisis has a huge impact on developing countries, and we don't talk enough about that. And these countries will face major problems with paying their energy bills. And uh, this is something that institutions like a BRD have to bear in mind every day. And Beata, your one overarching fear that remains after all this discussion? I worry that these very high energy prices will undermine public support for green transition. And while politicians will continue supporting decarbonization with words, the actions will slowly fizzle out. Okay, thank you very much, Beata and Sergey. I mean, I'm just reflecting on what I've taken away from this discussion. Uh, I think I'm sort of relieved that uh, in the winter, which will come on us, even though we're not even into summer yet, uh, the winter that will eventually come on to us, that we will have supplies of Russian gas if we wish to keep purchasing it. Clearly, it sounds though like Russia has a great interest in not turning off supplies to, to economies. But I also recognize that uh, it's going to come at a cost, you know, it, fossil fuels, gas, oil are going to remain expensive for some time. Uh, and as you both point out, I might be able to afford it, but I worry about many people in society who are clearly going to have very, very difficult months ahead in paying, especially if governments don't get their intervention right in helping those areas of society that really need it. But I also take away, and I'm quite optimistic after this discussion, that uh, you know we may be in for a pause in some elements of green transition, but I'm optimistic that actually technology and other necessities, including the climate, will push us on to a renewed spurt on, on green, actually, in the, in the years ahead. And uh, you know, let's hope that pause is not too long. Thank you very much to, to both of you. Thank you to everyone for listening to Fearonomics. This is the podcast where, together with Beata and Sergey, of course, we help you confront and overcome. I hope we've helped you overcome your energy fears, your fears about the global economy. Review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or anywhere else uh, you get your podcast from. You can share your ideas with us on Twitter at EBRD, hashtag Fearonomics. That's where you'll find us. See you next time. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with the next episode. In the meantime, remember to review and rate us. It will help others to find us. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.